So when I found out that we were doing this series on habits and hangups, the Lord started tapping me on the shoulder and asking me if I could get myself ready to interact with this series on habits and hangups. I didn't want to. Um, my story is, is relatively old, but I've been told that you have seven defining moments in your life. And my encounter with the 12 steps of AA was a major defining moment. Apart from my salvation, apart from my coming to know Jesus Christ as my personal savior, I do believe that my journey with the 12 steps of AA has fundamentally changed me more than anything else. As I stated last week, and I'm just gonna give a, a, a brief update, Dr. Bob and Bill W. were alcoholics, professional people who were going to a church over the waters and a part of the Oxford movement, which was a movement that was helping the church to grow spiritually. This was a time when the, the church had become very stale and outdated and people were just kind of showing up. So Sam Shoemaker started the 12 steps to bring life back into the church. Dr. Bob and Bill W. started coming to those meetings, but they were alcoholics and the people shunned them. They said they didn't smell good, they didn't bring the right aura, they just didn't get into the groove the way the rest of the people did. And so they really alienated the people that Dr. Bob and Bill W. would bring into the church. So. In 1935, those two men said, we're gonna start something that we can invite our people to be a part of because we know the value of these steps that Pastor Shoemaker is trying to teach us and we're actually embodying those steps and doing what the steps say, but the people are not embracing us. Imagine that. So they started the 12 steps and started inviting people to come in and that's when AA was born. I told a brief part of my story and the parts that I'm telling you are just relevant to my journey because it would take more time than what we have for me to, to, to give you more details. But um, at the time that alcoholism had more or less invaded every space of our lives. My deceased husband committed to going to Kaiser Permanente for an evaluation. The clinician was taking voracious notes and writing, writing, writing. I don't think he, his head went up during the whole time he was writing. And he looked up finally and he told him, you're going to AA and pointed to me and told me I was going to Al-Anon. I had no desire, no willingness. My feeling was you got your man, deal with him. It took me a good six months or so before I was willing to go to the first meeting. I went and I was appalled at how much work I had to do. And I'm not gonna go through that whole part of my story, but finally I realized that my problem was actually bigger 
been my husband's problem because I was playing the good little church girl routine. You know, I'm quoting verses and I'm dragging him to a church he didn't want to go to. I'm trying to be the Holy Spirit that God had clearly let me know was not my role or my calling. But I'm sharing with you some of the things that I've learned over the years and I'm overlapping some of the situations that happened in my life to give you um, just how powerful these steps were and still are. Gonna review the first five steps because that's what we covered last week. And the thing that I've explained to you is that the 12 steps of AA are being used now for so many different things and that line is there because just about anything you can imagine can go in that space. I'm powerless over exercise, I'm powerless over food, I'm powerless over pornography, I'm powerful, I'm just powerless. Came to believe that there was a powerlessness over whatever and that life had become unmanageable. And then step two is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now, Okay, I'm not gonna unpack that whole thing, but the bottom line is this whole power greater, getting out of oneself and realizing that there is something apart from me that can restore me to sanity. Now, what these people had experienced was the God that was in the church with those hypocrites was not the God that they wanted. So what you're going to do is experience language that they tried to set apart the God that they came to know as opposed to the God that they were experiencing in the church that was critical of them and really working hard to alienate them. So some of the language comes directly from that move to separate. In these 12 steps, the first one and the 12th one are the only ones that give evidence to other um, addictions. All the rest of them are duplicated, two through 11. You'll find that similarity in every group that you're a part of. The third step is they made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. There's that language. Now, we've talked about a hole that God has placed inside of us. I recall hearing that analogy along with the language of that there was a vacuum behind that hole that was pulling, that was live, that was active, that was creating crazy every day. The idea of that vacuum behind the hole is that there's something pulling me to eat five pieces of cake. There's something pulling at me to be on that treadmill for six hours. There's something pulling on me. It's not just a God-shaped Whole. It's a God-shaped hole with a vacuum. Because this thing is in us. God made us. He wired us. He made us to pursue him. 
to run after him, to desire him. That's how he created us. But this society has helped fill that hole with that vacuum, with whatever we just, well, I think I'll just, I'll go crazy over sitting out by the park. And the reason I'm going crazy sitting out by the park is because that's all I do. And I get up, I go sit at the park, and I sit there until it's time to go to bed. That's when it has become a problem. And these are the things that the groups are trying to help unravel. What, what is the problem? And when I say these groups, the, the groups of today that I've experienced, they're trying to help the people who show up at these groups identify what are we trying to replace God with? Because he's got this thing going inside of us that we cannot get away from. Then we talked about the searching fearless moral inventory. Most often, there's something that has happened that has called us to this crazy behavior. For me, I had to put in my inventory that I had been molested by my grandfather when I was six or seven years old, and that went on for 10 years. I had to identify that thing that was creating crazy. Why was I trying to fix this man I was married to? Because I couldn't fix me. I couldn't fix the stuff that was going on inside of me. I had to, I had to put my attention, my energy on fixing somebody else. And another thing I found after I was gang raped when I went to college was that that abuse while I was living with my husband stemmed from my inability to have any kind of boundaries. Boundaries were not even talked about in my environment. The men that I loved, and I was, I was raised by both of my parents. My dad died with my mother. I had none of those issues. But as a result of him being an alcoholic, there was never any emotional attachment. There was never any ability for me to try and get to know my father emotionally. My father never even told me he loved me until I was probably in my 30s or 40s. So these are the wounds. And when you talked about how do you identify there's a problem, there's certain traits that go on with people who are addicted that it's hard to identify. But the more we look into this, the more we find out that we're affected. And I had been deeply scarred by behaviors that I thought I could just pray, ask God to deliver me from, ask God to, to cradle me, hug me, which he did, but the stuff was still cooking. It was still cooking. And <clears throat> Step five is a step where you go to a person, a human being, and confess those things that were written down on paper. And people say, why do I got to tell anybody this? I do not want anybody else to know. It's enough that you've asked me to conjure up all this crap. And now you're saying you want me to go tell somebody? 
the telling somebody is to experience Jesus with skin. Experience some human being who will listen to all my crap, everything that I did, and then hug me and tell me they love me, keep coming back, it works. Because that's the power of these groups. People learn to embrace the stories and the, pe and the, and the persons who have been abused in a way that it's unimaginable. I've seen some love go on in these groups that I have never experienced anywhere else. And step five helps a person experience that love. I love you in spite of what you did and who you did it with and what it's done in your life. That's the value of being in community with people who have actually learned how to live out the word of God. So what I'm trying to expose to you is that Triple A, triple A. I don't know where that came from, but let's, let's try double A. Alcoholics Anonymous is a community of broken people who say that they're broken. And the authors of the steps would say that the church is really good at steps one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, just get them saved. But in these groups, we actually learn steps four through 10, whose these steps teach us how to live. So we're gonna spend some time talking about how these steps teach us how to live. So that's all the time I'm gonna spend on the review from last week. But I need to um, say once again that I'm sharing parts of my story that um, I have had such a healing from my crap that I can talk about it as if it didn't happen to me. It happened to somebody I read about in a book. Because God has reached into the depths of my soul and exposed himself to me in ways that I never could have imagined. So when we get to step six, this is the time to take a deep breath and really get honest. It says, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. The operative word in this step is entirely. Many people will have a salvation experience. They'll come to know Jesus Christ as their personal savior, but they will make a bargaining situation with God. They'll say to God, you know, um, I know I'm wrong. I know I need you, and I know you can do the things I need. And I know that this alcohol, this sex, or this whatever is a problem. But I'll tell you what, God, I'm just going to minimize on a couple days. Instead of having the whole gallon of vodka on Tuesday, I'm just going to have a glass. Instead of giving up all the women I was out there smoozing it with, I'm just going to Pair it down to one. You can be happy with that, God, right? There's a bargaining thing that goes on in this process because very few people are just willing 
to make an overnight transformation. So six is there to ask the question, are you really ready? And you may have to think about that for a while. Am I really ready? Am I really ready to turn all these defects of character over to God? And the verse that I'm using to support this is Philippians 3, 12 to 14. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus that possessed me. This, this couple verses helps to see that this is a process, that it didn't just happen last night, but there's a, a process that I'm acknowledging. I'm pressing on. I'm on a journey. I'm moving towards the very character that my Jesus has called me to have. I'm moving towards that. So six is kind of a, a solo step, but it's one of those steps that if it's not made, there's this bargaining that just keeps on going on and on and on. And then there's this back and forth and relapse, and it's just all kind of stuff that goes on because there's not the willingness to entirely turn over these defects of character. Then we move on to step seven. Humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Humbly is the operative word here. Because at this point, we're examining, am I really going to turn this over to God? Or am I going to be arrogant enough to think that I can control this thing? I can make my margins. I can decide how far I want to go. And God, I might need you on occasion to bail me out of a, a bad spot. But for the most part, I'm in control. I'm able to do this thing. And seven is, is saying, okay, who do you think you are? Just who do you think you are? And this image came to me, I can't tell you how many years ago, but it has made more sense to me than any other image about confession that I've ever heard. And the supporting verse for this is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. God just simply wants us to say the same thing that he says about our thoughts, about our behavior. He just agree with me. Just agree with me. No excuses, no alibis, no rationalization, none of that. Just agree with me that you messed up. And this illustration that I've never tried to do in public, but I'm going to try it here because I think it's so powerful. If we can imagine this pitcher of water being filled with God's grace, God's goodness, God's love, his kindness, his wisdom. If we can imagine that's what's in this vase. And if we can imagine that God is pouring out all those things into our lives 
every day. And the reason I know this is because scripture says it. God is filling us all the time with all that good stuff that he has available for us. When there's unconfessed sin, what we have done is we've tilted the glass. God wants to get through. He wants to give us all this stuff. He wants to fill us beyond measure with all the good stuff that he has to give us. But when there's unconfessed sin, he's pouring, he's giving, but we've turned the glass to the side. So all of God's goodness is just splattering all over the place, all around us, and keeping us out of a whole lot of trouble. But we don't experience the fullness of what God wants to give us when we're not willing to say, say the same thing that God says about sin. And that's why this scripture is so important in our whole process. Because just because we got an insurance plan with salvation, just because we got the get out of hell free card with believing in Jesus Christ as our personal savior and being willing to do what those leaders lead us to with the four spiritual laws, just because we're willing to do that does not conclude that we won't have stuff happening. And scripture is telling us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what God's word says, and that's what I believe. So later on in here, I'm going to um, share more how this gets worked out. But I'm going to move on to step eight. So once we are this far in the process, and I should say that for many people going to groups and working these steps, this didn't happen in a week. It didn't happen in a month. It took me three years just to get through this series of steps. I was kicking and screaming and telling God, you know, this is really not necessary. As long as he stops drinking and stops punching me and stops doing what he's doing, this is not necessary. And it took God forever to say, yeah, I don't care how flat you make this pancake, there's two sides and the side I'm looking at on you is not pretty. So we're gonna keep on working on you. You let me work on him so I can work on you. So step seven is saying, step eight is saying that we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. The operative word here is willing. Willing. Step eight doesn't mean that you're going to do anything, but you became willing to make the list to go back in your mind and think about the people that you have hurt, offended, and really are still scaring, carrying scars that you were part of making. This is one of the hardest um, parts for me to, um, to own up to publicly. 
but God, he, he knows how to get his point across. When, he's, when we go to him and we say, Lord, I'm trying to work on me, he said, okay, uh, all right, we're going to do that then. So I have two stepdaughters. I never call them stepdaughters because I came into their lives when they were two and seven. They're now 40-something and 50-something. I led both of those girls to Jesus. They didn't know anything about salvation. So I'm patting myself on the back and feeling like I'm doing some good stuff. And one Sunday I was out in LA and they had found a church they wanted me to visit and they wanted their mom to come along as well. God said, okay, you're fixing to do this thing. Because I had never gone to the woman that was actually still married to the man that I was with. But we're all sitting in the same row at church. She's here, the girls are here. The Holy Spirit of God said, you gonna sit up here and try and worship me with your stuff? I had no peace. I had to get up after that service and go into a corner with her and apologize. I had to tell her I was sorry for interrupting what could have possibly, even though I had decided that that marriage was over and I had all the evidence that made it possible for me to conclude with that, that wasn't my decision. And I was an affront to God, my Savior, my Jesus, for trying to clean up my mess with some spiritual stuff, you know, just lead the girls to Christ and take them to church and do the right thing with them and, and be the shiny witness at home. He provided a space inside of his house to have me examine my behavior and then go make amends. Now, I don't know if that ever made a difference with her because needless to say, she and I never had the best relationship. But what I know for a fact is it made a difference in my girls' lives. Because I shared all of this with them. And they were at a formative stage in making decisions about men and relationships and how to act and what to do. And to this day, they will say, it was your honesty. It was your willingness to own up to your crap with our mother they made me curious about this Jesus thing. Because we have to have some impetus for um, why should anybody be curious about what we're doing? Just for an insurance policy? If our lives are not a testimony, it's just not going to happen. 
So step eight is making the list. Step nine is actually going to the person, made, made direct demands to do so to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. This is the step that helps to give clarification on you don't go into somebody's house that they're struggling already and then dump your stuff in the middle of their struggle. That's not the time to make amends. And even with that, it might be better never to give a verbal amends if you know that somebody's gonna get hurt with this. And I've heard therapists counsel people to say, okay, you may not be able to go to this person and make amends, but you can write this all out and we'll go down to the water. We're gonna rip it all up and throw it into the, to the sea of forgetfulness. But we need for you to make the behavior clear. I'm writing it all down and I'm trying to get this stuff straight. So then we move on to step 10. Wait a minute, I didn't give you a verse for step. Thank you. <laughs> if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar and someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. God did that to me right there in that Sunday morning worship. He said, you, 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 can't, you can't be doing this with me if you haven't done that with her. And sometimes we wanna think that this information is arbitrary, that uh, I can pick and choose, I can do this maybe and that sometimes. But God's word is clear. He said, if you got, if you got an issue with somebody, get it straight before you come trying to tell me or ask me, or be with me in the way that I want. So we're gonna go on here to step 10, and this is my favorite. We continue to take personal inventory and we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Promptly is the operative word. For many years of my life, when I would lay down on the pillow, I would be taking this inventory. I'd be asking Jesus, okay, where did I mess up today? Where did I say the wrong thing? Who do I have to get up in the middle of the night and send an email to so they can see I, I caught it and I know you caught it and I'm sorry, please forgive me. That became such a good way for me to stop messing up. If I gotta get up or go somewhere to clean up my story, I'm not gonna do that as often. I'm not going to say, well, that's just me, and if they don't like it, that's just too bad. I can't hide behind that no more. I already told them I messed up. And they're not gonna believe me if I keep on messing up. The operative word is promptly. And believe me, we can have years go by before we say, Okay, all right, all right, all right. I'm gonna go clean that mess up. But what God Almighty does when we finally willing to do it, he gives us a peace that passes all understanding simply because we are obedient. 
And the verse that I use to substantiate that when we, when we continue to take this personal inventory, we're, we're creating muscles. And if you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. It is a process that you can take all of your life in growth. And like I said, much of this information happened to me many, many years ago, but it has become a part of me now, today. And these steps still tap me on the shoulder and say, okay, now what, what time is it? What time is it for you to go do this thing? So then in step 11, I like to think that the church is really good at steps one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, and step 11. We sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. We've all been encouraged. Darby encouraged, her, encouraged us with her time in front of us. Then I'm pretty certain that Travis encouraged it the same way with this whole idea of prayer. Prayer for me, is a constant conversation, a constant conversation all day, every day, especially when things are going good, especially when I can find something that I've been looking for that is totally lost. I am thanking Jesus in ways that I can't even believe myself, but prayer is something that we as believers need to be caught up in all the time. 24-7. Yes, it's great when we gather and we're with each other and we pray together, but to have that personal, vibrant prayer relationship with God Almighty is very important. And the verse that I use there is one of the, the simple ones. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Devote ourselves. Make, make a commitment. I'm going to be in communication with God. And then when I meditate, God is in communication with me. And it's amazing the little stuff that God will whisper. And sometimes I'll debate and wonder, is that me or is that God? And so he'll set up something else, and he'll affirm what he gave me the first time. Prayer is critical. And then we go on to step 12, which says another thing that we're really good at with regard to our desire to go out and share Jesus, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Once we have been bitten by God's spirit to live our lives in a way that he has ordained, not in a way that we just kind of put Jesus in a, a suitcase that has wheels on it, and we drag him around everywhere we go. But he has inhabited us throughout the process of working these steps. We want to tell somebody. We want to quote verses that say that God is not a respecter of persons. If he can do it for me, he can do it for you. Come on to a meeting with me. Come on to a Bible study with me. This is what creates the fire because I've experienced God Almighty over the last two or three years working through these steps in my life. 
Now, at this stage in my life, the biggest joy having worked through this process is to spend time with my granddaughters. And you've had the opportunity to meet both of them, Amaya and Rihanna. I can share any of what I just shared with you with them. Because what I'm sharing with them is the power of Jesus by way of his Holy Spirit is what has enabled me to be who you think I am. I know who I am, but you're not real clear on who I am. You got some kind of ideas. You've watched some stuff over the years. But it's Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit that can get your life now. You don't have to wait till you're 40, 50 years old. He can get your life now and set you on a path so you don't have to have the crap that I had. And so now when I look back of it, I'm just so, 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 so grateful. Whew, now I'm looking at the clock and I'm saying, oh, well, that's, that's it for today. Because <laughs> we got other things to do.